0: You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. For the wealthy, a luxury product is their essential. For aspirational customers, a luxury item is their treat. For one, it is a utility, for the other, a desire. The good news is that equation in a meritorious society is unlikely to change, rain, shine, or virus. Now is not the time for self-doubt. Customers look up to you and your brand as the voice of authority on matters of quality, excellence in service, and aligned values. So hang on to your certitude and conviction. You will bounce back when this scourge is over. Of course, there is no immediate parallel But this hour of trial brings to mind what they say about surgeons in general. Commonly wrong, but never uncertain. That was an excerpt from an editorial piece titled, It'll Be Okay. It recently ran in Luxury Daily and was written by my guest on the luxury item podcast, Mickey Kahn. Mickey is the founder and editor-in-chief of Luxury Daily, the world's leading luxury business publication. Mickey also founded, edited, and sold Mobile Marketer and Mobile Commerce Daily, two leading trade publications in their space. Prior to that, Mickey was editor-in-chief of eMarketer and DM News. He was also a correspondent for Advertising Age in his early career. Hello, Mickey. How you doing? Great. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate the opportunity. I'm so thrilled to have you on, uh, on the show during these times. Uh, where are you quarantined these days?
1: I'm quarantined at home. Uh, I live um, on the Upper East Side, close to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And um, it's a very surreal feeling to uh, see my neighborhood completely cleared out. A lot of people have gone to their second homes yeah. in the Hamptons of Palm Beach, and they've exported New York's uh, COVID. So, um, but it's a quiet neighborhood right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sandwiched between two hospitals, uh, Lenox Hill on 77th Street and Mount Sinai, which is almost close to 100 Street. and at one point, um, at the height of the coronavirus crisis, uh, all I could hear was sirens from these two hospitals taking, uh, you know, patients back and forth, and it was just so awful. You know, it was just a oral reminder of the times we live in, but. Uh, um, I see uh, we have fewer sirens now and fewer ambulances passing. So that, to me, is a positive sign. I think yeah. we've, we've seen the worst.
0: You know, the coronavirus has done major damage to the luxury industry. I don't have to tell you that. You know, it's been through crisis after crisis, disaster after disaster. And in the midst of it, you know, we always seem to emerge the same. You know, each time the industry has emerged into a strong recovery. That excerpt that I took from your love letter, if you will, your piece that you wrote. Um, You said everything's gonna be okay. So do you really think it's gonna be okay this time?
1: I do believe in the resilience of uh, mankind. I do believe that, uh, you know, the audience that the luxury market serves is far better insulated than the mass market as long as their stock portfolios hold up and their businesses are secure, that market is secure. What is at risk is the aspirational luxury market. And that's the aspirational customer who's probably been scared because of this um, crisis and may cut back on their expenses. But I do feel if luxury brands push a message of quality, of safety, Um, and uh, a familiarity that, you know, people in terms of crisis, they want to go back to things with which they're familiar. Then this market is much better prepared to bounce back than uh, mass brands. So I do feel that uh, brands belonging to conglomerates such as LVMH, Richemont, Kering, uh, Swatch, uh, Chanel, Hermes, they're going to emerge – uh, much better off than uh, the other brands that are independent, unfortunately, because they've got better balance sheets and they've got more financial reserves, they've got better branding, and they've also got uh, better e-commerce capabilities. So I do feel that luxury will bounce back. The demand will be slightly constrained, um, but uh, the core product uh, will still be sought after
0: do you think the heritage brands will have a better chance of surviving long term as they have in the past
1: absolutely and uh, these brands have seen off two world wars they've seen off the great depression they've seen off the recession they've seen off if you're focused on far east they've seen off various flus um, and they're built for the long term. Uh, their products have uh, enduring uh, strength. So I do feel that heritage brands are not positioned for today or tomorrow, but for the next generation. Yeah. And uh, if you look at Patek Philippe's branding, I mean, the tagline is, you know, you're merely a custodian for that watch, right? I mean, right. you're taking care of it for the next generation. So if you have that mentality, then you're not, Uh, you know, implementing any short-termism in your strategy.
0: And I know Luxury Daily has been covering the coronavirus pandemic since its impact on the luxury industry. And I think since January when the virus spread um, and was starting to affect the luxury goods sales in China. So just in the last five months, four to five months what about from your perspective, on you, on your end, what were some of the biggest lessons that you've learned in covering this over the past four months?
1: Well, I was shocked with the, uh, the level of compassion of the brands. I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people lose sight of the fact that these companies, they repurposed their facilities and factories and they, uh, you know, within a short time, they... Start producing surgical gear non surgical gear face masks uh, equipment, and they contributed to their local health authorities and to their local communities. I think that's going to be vastly appreciated by the governments and by customers uh, and they haven't been i mean they're not they've not showed off about that, but you know we've covered um, pretty much everything that these brands have done and I can tell you they' altruism and their uh, philanthropy will be uh, noticed after this crisis subsides. So I do think that stood out to me, that um, it was all hands on deck for this crisis. Uh, Then uh, the second thing that stood out was the message of optimism from these brands, Gucci in particular, and then you look at pretty much caring corporate, Uh, they've always um, Emphasize that you'll see a better tomorrow. So, I think that message of hope across social media and email really resonates. It's telling people that, you know, this too shall pass. And luxury brands have been very careful about uh, balancing merchandising and marketing with uh, a show of compassion and actual genuine compassion through their deeds. So, that thing stood out too. is. The messaging was relevant, and they were also compassionate. And then, of course, I think uh, the way they handled the uh, crisis itself. Uh, Chanel has kept on all its staff. Hermes kept on all its staff. Louis Vuitton and his parent and, um, and then Caring, they've tried to support their staff as much as possible. I think that's very laudable. Um, a lot of non-luxury brands did not hesitate to let go of people within a week of the crisis hitting and lockdowns occurring. So I do feel that uh, the luxury brands took care of their people. Very important because they are your biggest asset. And when you you return to a sense of normality, I mean, you need these guys to help uh, sell your product or service. So that is the third thing that stood out for me is caring for your own people. That really stood out. So i say these three things stood out. And now we're seeing this steady um, um, uh, return to, you know, accepting online orders and saying that, hey, you can call us, we'll deliver and we'll have white glove service. So we're seeing now more uh, a prevalence of a return to commerce, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and I would agree that the, you know, the Brand, a lot of these luxury brands uh, rose to the occasion. And the story that really stuck out with me was LVMH. As a branding person, you know, in the early stages of the global outbreak, you know, LVMH donated millions of dollars to the Red Cross of China. And most remarkably, they turned its perfume factories into, you know, sanitizer manufacturers. So it's a perfect, to me, that was the perfect example how great brands lead with, perf- lead with purpose and not profit. I 100% agree.
1: And if you've followed what's happened in China, these uh, Chinese aspirational customers and affluent customers are returning to the market. Maybe they won't uh, return to pre-COVID spends, but uh, they've not boycotted any of these brands and they've repaid their loyalty. So it just shows that if you're a luxury marketer, you have to be highly engaged with your local communities, uh, be highly sensitive to their situation and not uh, not engage in politics. That is very key. Stay clear from politics.
0: Yeah, you know, and department store chains are facing hurdles like never before um, during the COVID nineteen lockdowns. You know, Neiman Marcus recently filed for bankruptcy, and others are adding to this growing list of retailers that are considering considering different uh, survival options. So, do you think luxury brands will survive without department stores?
1: Well, let's talk about the stores, the department stores themselves. Uh, they were already fragile pre-COVID-19. That model was under stress. Most of their direct clients are brands. And these vendors of theirs have opened monobrand stores in direct competition to the stores, the department stores. So at some point, the chickens were going to come home to roost. So you're competing with the very people who are just two blocks down from you. So that model was under stress. And then um, you have issues of uh, finances and debt. Neiman Marcus has $4.8 billion of debt. And that's because the companies, the Canadian pension fund and another private equity group, they bought them and settled them with this debt. And as you know, when people buy these brands, they strip them off their assets or they try to squeeze as much as possible to get value out of that acquisition. So that's what happened. So I feel that a lot of these department stores will have to right-size the number of stores they have. And, uh, you know, go back to the old model where you were a little more exclusive. When you come to New York, uh, You look forward, if you're, you know, in the old days, you look forward to going to Bergdorf Goodman because that was the preeminent department store in New York. Or if you went to Dallas, you went to Neiman Marcus. Or Seattle, you went to Nordstrom. So you need to make that destination special again and not just an amped up version of the mall department store. Now comes the question of their solvency. Mm -hmm. So if some of these guys go bankrupt, will that affect luxury brands? Yes and no. It'll affect the newer luxury brands and those who are looking to crack the market, but it won't affect as much the older, more established luxury brands because they already have their own retail network and they're already better placed online. So I feel that department stores still serve a very important purpose. It's a one-stop shop. Uh, You can pretty much get a curated collection, a selection of products and services. You have a personal relationship with your personal shopper, and it's also a tourist destination. And most important, it's the way you introduce new brands to the market. So I hope that uh, a lot of these brands get their act together. Even if Neiman Marcus goes through its bankruptcy, uh, I'm fairly confident that... uh, They'll still be a Neiman Marcus. Uh, it might not have the number of stores it does. Same thing with Nordstrom. I I mean, I believe they're getting rid of 16 stores. Uh, but I have faith that if they manage their finances well and they maintain their purpose, they'll survive. But I'm, I believe that they should make each store unique and it should be a destination unto itself, like a Bergdorf or a Le Bon Marche. Or, you know, uh, Harrods, uh, you know, you need that kind of charm.
0: In a post-COVID-19 world, where when these department stores do start to open up and customers are slowly going back into these stores, they're going to be anxious, anxiety, they're going to be anxious, and they're a different mindset going in. While perhaps in the past, they went into these department stores focusing, wanting to get a a handbag or a suit or whatever it is there were there was this sense of enthusiasm going in and now go, going back in there's always going to be that element of ex- anxiety and social distancing how do you what do you think the role of department store will be um, especially when it comes to customer service i think department stores
1: still play a very key role as i said they've uh... You've got pretty much a wide selection of products under one roof. Now, the key issue is the anxiety. And I think that just doesn't contain itself to a department store. It's very essential that these shoppers have jobs. Everything is linked to the customer's financial well being. Because if you're looking at department stores, They've got two or three tiers of customers. They've got the tourists, they've got the locals, and they've got the affluent. The affluent are pretty much used to their personal shoppers, and so that market is a bit insulated. The tourist market is very badly hit, and department stores bank on that market. So that's going to be a hole in their balance sheet there for at least six months till tourism returns to Paris and London and New York and Milan and all these places right and then you've got the aspirational customers who save up for a louis vuitton canvas bag or perfumes or you know they save up and so when they walk into a department store um what's going to happen right now is they're going to see a highly discounted merchandise because unfortunately that's the first thing that department stores do you're going to see nothing but deals right and a lot of luxury brands don't like that. Yep. And that is going to be another reason why luxury brands may not, after this crisis over, they may not uh, uh, want to retain their connections to a several department stores because they feel that uh, department stores devalue the value of the brand. So if, if you're a customer today, the minute these stores open their doors, you go in because you're going to get the best deals on luxury products for the next three to four months. Right. Department stores get rid of all their uh, uh, spring, summer merchandise, and even the fall, uh, early fall merchandise. So right now, um, if you don't have much cash and you're looking for bargains, go and shop department stores online, or uh, in stores when the uh, stores open their doors. So I do feel that um, you know you go, you're going to see traffic. They'll just have to run better campaigns online and. Um, you know, just ensure uh, that their customer base is, you know, financially okay to Mm -hmm. come and shop with them.
0: You know, speaking of online, you know, the the retail world has changed with the pandemic and we're seeing a lot of luxury brands take stock in their digital strategies and reviewing the role of e-commerce in their business models. So how do you think these brands can drive value for customers when omni-channel support now is probably, now is probably more important than ever?
1: I think the one thing that has emerged out of this crisis is the need for brands to pivot more digitally. And I see no reason why they shouldn't do that. Think about Amazon. What was Amazon's revenue last year? Was it $248 billion or was it $298? I forget. I think <laughs> it, was two, track. it was $248 billion last year. Yeah. There's no reason why Luxury marketers now cannot learn from Amazon and offer a better experience online. Um, This generation, the millennial generation and Gen Z and even the younger Gen Xers are very comfortable buying sight unseen. Uh, They're trusting. And if they don't like a product, they're very comfortable returning them. Right. Right. So if you're worried about, Familiarity and exclusivity, that's gone out the door when Bernard Arnault created a conglomerate in the 80s and bought all these family brands and basically applied mass market principles to luxury and opened 400 stores for Louis Vuitton or, you know, hundreds of stores for Dior and all that. So these brands don't talk about exclusivity anymore. They're pretty much available to anyone who has money. So that obstruction to going digital is basically dead what they need to do is make sure that they have the level of customer service online that they have in person which means better call centers i do feel that this is one area where luxury brands have failed when you're shopping online you should have the option to say hey i have a question click on this and i'll get a live person within a couple minutes that is very key because once you have that option of having a live voice at the other end and you have the merchandise in front of you, the only thing you're lacking is the tactile touch. And if you remove that impediment of having a consultation with someone, you will see an exponential growth in your sales. So I do feel that this is a fantastic opportunity for luxury brands and retailers to ramp up their e-commerce offerings to be a little smarter in their email marketing and to also ensure that uh, their fulfillment centers are well-equipped to deliver products within 48 to 72 hours. You have to learn from Amazon. If Amazon can turn into a $248 billion a year brand in 25 years, there's no reason why LVMH can't start their own e-commerce initiative. You know something interesting? 20 years ago, I used to cover luxury. And at that point, LVMH owned a fantastic URL. It was called eluxury.com. And they launched an e-commerce operation in year 2000. And I covered it. And then it bombed. It didn't succeed. And they let that URL expire. And now someone else owns it. Now think about that. LVMH has 75 brands. It's very easy for them to do their own net a And you build loyalty to that destination. You can have a fantastic one stop shop for LVMH. Same thing with Caring. Same thing with Richemont. So you have the potential there. And people will buy online now because they've, these, these two months under quarantine have trained people. To trust online more, to buy through mobile devices, and to buy through computers. So, again, circumstances have done what marketing couldn't. Right. Basically, make acceptable purchases of big ticket
0: items. Now, I don't
1: know, I don't have data if many big ticket items were purchased, but I do know. Many luxury items are purchased.
0: And I totally agree about having better call centers because customers, especially luxury brand customers, when they are shopping online, given these times, I think they're going to want an element of human touch in it and a human voice who represents the brand. Absolutely right. You know, the first quarter, you know, for many of these luxury uh, brands and European luxury brands was pretty brutal. And they relied pretty heavily on the Chinese shoppers, which represented what, like 90% of the luxury growth last year? Yes. It, and it seems like China has turned the corners on these big major cities and, you know, they're showing cautious optimism. Store traffic and sales imp- are improving for brands like Gucci and Amez. Chinese consumers still s- remain the biggest growth opportunity for the luxury se- uh, sector. So do you think there'll be that same pent-up demand here in the U.S.? that will trigger this revenge buying?
1: I'm not sure. Um, And even with the revenge spending in China, that may taper off a bit. You have to keep in mind that a huge chunk of luxury purchases are made on travel. And uh, the luxury business is heavily reliant on tourism. So as long as borders are closed, you're going to have a problem with the Chinese because 50% of Chinese Consumption of luxury goods and services is through travel right. and tourism. So, if they can't come back to the United States or go to Western Europe or Northern Europe, um, then that's going to be an issue there. Um, the Chinese market domestically, I think uh, that's going to be strong um, as long as the supply chain is able to supply. Uh, you know, at some point, Italy. In France and the UK have to get back on their feet and start making product for uh, Q4 and next year. So right now, whatever products being sold in China is already in China, right? And when that merchandise is exhausted, you'll have a problem. So my concern is how quickly can these centers of production get back on their feet? You have to allow, Italian artisans and factories to start manufacturing. and Likewise with uh, the Britons and uh, the French and the Spaniards and even Chinese because, I mean, like it or not, a lot of luxury goods components are made in China and then exported to France and the UK and to Italy and Switzerland, even you know the watchmakers, they make a lot of stuff in China and then they assemble in their home countries. So China is so deeply connected to the entire luxury ecosystem. You can't just isolate one thing and say that that's going to drive growth there. I think uh, there's another lesson that emerges from this lockdown. One, as I mentioned, is paying more attention to e-commerce. The second thing that luxury brands ought to do is pay more attention to their domestic markets. I think in this rush to satisfy the Chinese market, they've lost sight of the fact that you have to keep Europe and North America and the Middle East happy too. You've got to focus heavily on these markets. If all you're doing is relying on one market to provide 90% of your sales growth as China did last year, and 20% of your overall industry spend, as China accounts for right now, then you're in trouble if that market is offline. So we're very lucky that China is back on its feet. Can you imagine what would have happened if China was exactly like the US situation and it was completely locked down for five months or six months? I think luxury brands ought to, if you're a smart luxury brand today, you're in the united states or you're in france we should think how do i make sure that i get more french people to buy into my lifestyle or more neighboring countries to buy in that lifestyle so in case you have a contagion again and you have issues with travel long distance travel you're you're not beholden to one market for all your sales growth you don't put your eggs in one basket and unfortunately the luxury business has done that.
0: You know, you know, once the dust settles from all this, there's no question, you know, we're gonna face a recessionary market and the industry landscape is gonna go, uh, undergo dramatic transformation, especially the consumer mindset. Given that, do you see a growing antip- antipathy toward waste producing business models and heightened expectations for purpose-driven and sustainable brands?
1: Do I see that? I'm a bit skeptical we've already seen uh, a steady move towards sustainability. And you know, uh, brands, you've got to give luxury brands that much credit. Uh, They've uh, read the tea leaves. Customers have said they want to see more transparency in the supply chain. They expect better practices. But now take a look at what happened with COVID. So we were absolutely on track to get rid of plastic. And now with COVID, plastic is back. Think about that, right? Right. You have to use single-use containers. You can't share. You can't bring your own mugs into Starbucks stores anymore. Um, I don't think these hotels that are planned to have to get rid of single-use sachets for shampoo will be able to do that anymore. Uh, They'll have to reinstate that just for uh, safety's sake.
0: Right, at least for the time being.
1: So for the time being... Depending on the sector you're in, sustainability will have to take a backseat to safety. And um, I think what we are, when we refer to sustainability, we are referring to waste and want in the fashion business. And you're talking about fast fashion. You're talking about even high-end fashion where you have 12 collections a year. I don't know how that will stop because you're asking these big conglomerates to take a haircut. And cut the number of collections and uh, the number of products they sell. I don't think they're willing to do that. So, if there's any change that has to come, it has to come from the top. And there are only six or seven people who can make that decision. It's Mr. Arnaud, Bernard Arnaud from LVMH. Mm -hmm. It's Francois Pinot from Caring. It's uh, Johan Rupert from uh, Richemont. Uh, Then you have uh, the brothers who run. chanel um and the hayek's from swatch group and then you've got you know axel and i mean uh, uh, pierre-alexi duma and then his cousin axel duma and all these guys they have to make that decision like you know do we go to an older model where we are a little more selective in our product and you know we uh, curb the uh, production and you know you scale down the model a bit or do you continue? I don't see, I think luxury is far too corporatized for it to basically go back to a 1960s model. So that's not gonna change. You're Mm -hmm. still gonna have uh, the same uh, torrent of product out there. What will probably change is the way they produce the product, paying more attention to the sourcing, the materials, the care of the uh, suppliers and uh, transparency. They'll probably use more technology like um, blockchain, Mm -hmm. and that'll be more prevalent. But uh, if you expect more from the luxury business,
0: no. You know, McKinsey recently uh, released an insightful report. They were discussing the impact of the crisis on the luxury goods sector. And uh, in that report, McKinsey believed Um, you know, experiential luxury, which was really one of the most dynamic and fast-growing components of the luxury sector, especially among millennials, will slow down as consumers revert to buying goods over this whole idea of experiences. So do you think that consumers are moving from the idea of being to to owning again? No, I don't think so. Look, I think...
1: I don't want to knock these consultancies... um, but you can't, you can't plan for a victory while you're still in the battlefield. Uh, you can hope for it, but you can't plan for it. And unfortunately, what they've done, all these consultancies, management consultancies, have come up with all these solutions, and the dust is still not uh, cleared. We don't know how this crisis will impact behavior long term. We just don't. Um, those who are really affluent, for them, product was always king. It always was, it always will be. It's better to own something and have some tangible product and value on your hand. That's why the jewelry business will always be with us. Um, hard goods will always be with us. Now, when we talk about experiences, a lot of people allude to experiences and they confuse that for travel and hospitality. Uh, because travel became cheaper, millennials could afford to travel more, plain and simple. And when they travel more, they bought more or they ate out more often. Will that change? It depends on the restrictions at these destinations. It depends on the restrictions in airlines. So that's a market that's still... um, taking shape i don't know if you're going to see a move from as they said from being to owning and all that kind of stuff it's too early right now i feel that we had not we had never gone totally over to experience to me real experience is how you deliver the product that's plain and simple whether you're selling a hard luxury item or you're selling a hotel bed or you're selling a restaurant experience. How you deliver that experience and how you make the end customer feel good or better about themselves is real experience. That to me is what matters. We should not confuse experience with not owning product. That is not experience.
0: You know, you were talking about travel before and you recently ran a piece you had all these travel experts predicting the future of travel. You know, everything from private travel, via member-only vacation and aviation clubs to adventure activities and all these things. So how do you think the luxury travel industry will change? We're already seeing, you know, uh, I forgot which cruise line it was. They're, they're ready to open, um, I think, August 1st. But as things open, you know, there's no question, hospitality is going to just, uh, is, is, go, is upended essentially. And travel, air travel.
1: You're 100% right. Hospitality is appended. So the two sectors that are hardest hit in luxury are retail and hospitality. And we've already discussed retail. Now with hospitality, you have ways to make the customer feel safe and secure on your premises. So Marriott has come up with its own safety guides and guidelines. And it's very simple. I mean, If you're a hospitality brand, you should be taking this opportunity for the next two or three months to work with your architects to rejigger your public areas, uh, the lobbies in most hotels and resorts. Uh, You should have plexiglass partitions at check-in, at concierge desk. Um, They'll probably remove bar stools uh, from being cheek by jowl And you're probably going to see tables spread further apart. Very easily implemented, but it comes at a very heavy cost to the bottom line of hotels. So what we don't know is, will the cost of travel go up? Will the cost of hotels go up? Will we go back to the position of the early 70s to mid-70s when the airlines were not deregulated in the United States and airfare was way more expensive than it is now? So that's another issue for aspirational travelers. Will, F, will air travel be cheap? Will you be able to do that flight from London to Ibiza or to uh, you know, uh, any one of those Spanish islands or to Italy or to France you know, for a few pounds? Not sure. So if you're a resort... It's very key for you to tap the people who are within driving distance and entice them and I'd say basically it's a two-hour driving distance anyone who is within a hundred mile radius of your property is your first prospect and then people who have uh, second homes and they you know have guest overflows they come over to your place too but I do think that the hospitality business can easily implement new safety precautions and uh, you know have staggered check-ins uh, contactless key cards all you have to do is install the app on your phone and you do not have to go to front desk to get your key card Wait, do check, no, check out
0: on the phone yeah there's no question technology is going to have to play a major role in the process for hospitality how can you use technology to alleviate some of that anxiety that Visitors and, and, and travelers have that they're thinking about going in? How could you remove that that friction so they're not as anxious? And technology is really going to be the only answer to do that.
1: Well, it depends on the brand. You're tr- you have to trust the brand, and that's where the relationship comes into play. If you have a very strong relationship with the Ritz Carlton brand as a customer, you will trust that the Ritz Carlton is doing right by you. And the same thing applies with the Four Seasons. Of Fairmont or Dorchester or any number of groups out there or the Amman Hotels group. So the number one thing is how strong is your relationship to your customer if you're the brand. And then you can weigh your measures and what you're doing to keep that customer safe on your property to that customer. That's number one. Number two, you're talking about the airline, or you're talking about the ship, or you're talking about Whatever transportation they're taking, they have to reassure that customer again that you won't catch this virus en route. But if you're talking about anxiety, if they were really that anxious, they would not book that trip and they would not board that flight. So the high level of anxiety that they have is at the starting point And by they come to the by the time they come to the actual venue. There's just a little residual anxiety there. And that's when front desk comes into play, signage comes into play, and practice comes into play. So if you walk into a Ritz-Carlton after this crisis, and when you walk to front desk, someone should hand you a booklet or something or point you to a section on the app saying that, just look to see what we are doing to keep you safe once you're in the room, right? Right. With, um, with room service, right? If you don't want to eat in the restaurant, we'll make room service better. Uh, uh, housekeeping, how do you ensure that housekeeping is safe for you? How do you ensure that uh, you know, the room is clear of germs and that you, know, you don't have to worry about the previous guest in the room, right? All those measures have to be very clearly spelled out and that will require, you're gonna see very soon these hotels and hospitality groups and cruise ships come out with materials reassuring their customers of the steps they've taken then independent bodies and local governments or those with jurisdiction will have to do audits on in these venues just like how you have audits in restaurants right uh, you have these sudden inspections you're going to have inspections of these facilities and they'll have to give a certificate saying that all right they're complying. But it boils down to trust. And it boils down to really implementing these safety measures and then conveying that knowledge to your customer or prospect.
0: I want to take a little turn here and talk about influencers. And in recent years, these lifestyle influencers have really emerged to a class of their own. You know, they have to connect to their followers in part of the current zeitgeist with COVID-19 dominating the public life, and that's really become harder for these influencers to do. So do you think the coronavirus will kill the whole idea of influencer culture? Now, when you talk
1: about influencers, I mean, are you talking about brand spokespeople? Are you talking about people who've gotten famous by getting more
0: social media influencers?
1: It depends on how well they've stayed connected and authentic, you know? i mean with my problem with influencers was the fine print that they never disclosed till um, till you know various governments forced them to make it quite transparent that they were paid to pitch and to pay to play so as long as people understand that connection they've got a business because they reach audiences the unfortunate downside to this virus, and it also predates this, is that the media industry around the world is very weakened, and this virus has done no favors. I've been in media for 27 years, and I can tell you this is the worst it's ever been, and we don't know if in five to ten years you'll have um, an independent media environment you might have the New York Times and the Condé Nast surviving here and there, but you know you don't have small independent media brands uh, without any advertising support or subscriptions. And again, each time you have a crisis like this, both streams of revenue take a knock. Not to uh, mention the loss of an events stream of revenue. You can't even host an event now. So that's where influencers come into play, is because they have basically taken over the role of media and very often they have far bigger followings than a Condé Nast or Hearst magazine. Mm-hmm. Question is how credible are they and will their audience trust them going forward? I don't see a reason for them not to. So I think the um, influencer market will continue to survive and it may even thrive. And, uh, that's especially the case in China. Uh, you know, the key opinion leaders in China are the driving force for yep. a lot of luxury brand sales.
0: Yeah, you so. talked about events before, and you know, virtual events have become the new normal. You know, fashion weeks and trade shows have completely been reimagined, and many brands who rely on live events or conferences have either canceled them or pushed them to later in the year, or pivoted and pivoted to some kind of you know virtual alternative. And I know Luxury Daily um, has a lot of amazing events. How are you handling? the conferences for now that you can talk about that is a
1: major challenge for us because we've always done webinars we've done webinars for 10 years now and we've had a great reception Uh, we do them for an hour and it's free to the readers now you've got to take a conference that's typically eight hours and bring it online and keep the readers or the viewers connection Uh, and attention for eight hours online. I don't know how that'll translate. Number two is the business model itself. Will people pay to uh, listen to speakers and view them online? I already see quite a few companies doing that, so that may not be that much of a hurdle, but the question is price, how do you price it? Uh, What you lose is networking, face-to-face networking. that is going to be a casualty and so when you price a conference online you've got to price it accordingly to uh reflect the fact that the networking component is gone and you can have a side-by-side component where you know you can connect people like everyone has access to email addresses with you know uh, you know you keep create a linkedin group which is what we're going to do uh, for conferences but uh we're just waiting to see what others are doing as well. Now we do have a women in luxury conference coming up, and uh, New York has just said that. I mean, not New York, but uh, the venue that we have, the UBS building. They told us we can't even host our conference in July anymore. Wow. We were supposed to host it in April. Couldn't do that. We moved it to June. Couldn't do that, and now we can't host it in July. And they've closed their facilities through end of August. Hmm. Now I can't wait to the end of August right. to host our conference. So, willy we'll bring it online, and um, I hope to God that you know uh, it succeeds. Because if that succeeds, then that opens up a new stream of revenue for us, where we can um, basically put on more conferences, and it'll be available worldwide to people to listen. Right, and it'll be a lower registration fee. But we won't have to worry about, uh, you know, keeping people six feet away from each other, <laughs> sanita- uh, hand sanitation uh, stuff and uh, the food and all the kind of I mean, don't forget, this is going to be another issue, right? You go to a conference. Most of these conferences have buffets. And Luxury Daily's conferences were always box lunches. And I, over the years, I insisted, uh, whenever we had these events, I said, I do not like cold open uh, salads and food For just around because people sneeze. <laughs> so here's the funny thing. You're ahead of your time. Six months ago, uh, no, four or five, yeah, uh, six months ago, uh, UBS, where we host our events in New York, they came up with a policy. It was part of the sustainability policy that we are not gonna use plastic or paper anymore. So I got word from my caterers, sorry, everyone has to use China and forks and knives. I said, but you know, it's not sanitary. They said, no, we can't do anything about it. Well, guess what? Box lunches are back. <laughs> <laughs> uh... so we all have to adapt. We all have to adapt. At the end of the day, I'm fairly confident uh, there is a place for in-person conferences. Uh, we human beings are social. We do need to see each other While we may not need to see each other as often now for meetings and making decisions, but we do need to see each other for prospecting and for building relationships or making them stronger. So I do feel smaller events like ours, we limit our events to 100 to 125 people. We've never gone beyond that. There is a room for that. And it's easy to enforce the social distancing there and keep all the precautions in place. But when you're dealing with four to 5,000 people in one venue, I think there'll be a lot of anxiety even through the end of the year. Yeah, I would agree. You just don't know who's carrying what.
0: So my final question before I ask you the luxury item question is really asking you to kind of look into the future is, you know, what will the luxury industry's greatest challenge be in the next five years? And where do you think the luxury industry should focus?
1: So let's take your first part of the question. What's the challenge for the next five years? I think what we've learned is, you know, we never factored in pandemics in our playbook. Nope. No business. That wasn't
0: part of the bingo card.
1: It wasn't part of the bingo card. So I think now that gets thrown into the mix when you buy insurance. And so, China has had fantastic practice with this. They had had the SARS epidemic 2003 and then they had MERS, they had swine flu. That economy is used to handling shocks of the scale and bouncing back. The West is not. The West has had relative calm since 1945. No wars on their lands and no aggression bar the few communist takeovers and all that. So Now, your five-year plan has to include highly unpleasant surprises from left field. So this is just one. If you remember a few years ago, uh, there was a volcanic eruption in Iceland,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and it stopped travel in the Western Hemisphere.
0: Yep, I remember that. Right?
1: Planes couldn't go through those clouds because your engine would stop. Now, think about that. If you have another volcanic explosion in the next two years, travel is affected again, borders shut. So luxury brands have to be prepared to see borders shut again in the next five years. That is one thing they have to factor in, which means that they have to be well-prepared to service their customer cross-border even if the borders are physically shut. And you need to have redundancy there, build in redundancy. You also need to make sure that you service your local market better. If if Louis Vuitton is in the United States, make sure that at least 50% of your sales or 60% of your sales comes from the U.S. market and the rest through travel. You see, don't expose yourself to travel as much. That is another thing. The third challenge I see is, Uh, A move to this is probably going to happen as time passes is to buy less. And you're seeing that with millennials. If you look at their furniture, I mean, uh, in their residences, they don't have as much stuff as baby boomers did. They don't have China cabinets. They don't believe in buying baubles as much. So they buy less, But they
0: buy better yes live large and carry little as they say yes
1: exactly so i think the challenge for luxury brands is to sell less but sell better to convey the message that you can buy less but buy better quality so they've got to emphasize the message of quality that's very very important at the end of the day as a luxury brand you're the maker of a very high quality product or a purveyor of extremely high quality uh, service. And that's it.
0: You know, given that, I think that's a big challenge to the fast fashion business who's really never relied on that.
1: That will change. But again, you can't mandate uh, fast fashion to stop. Uh, Demand, the market speaks. You can't when the market speaks, that market drops. So as long as there's a market for fast fashion and customers buy it, that market will survive. But when you're talking about high luxury, I think you're going to see a rationalization there. Uh, you're going to see, I mean, don't forget, there was nothing broken with the luxury world till this lockdown. I mean, everyone comes up with all these nostrums and all these solutions. And sometimes I'm sick of it because guess what? the luxury industry went gangbusters last year. Yeah, I mean, they came off a fantastic year.
0: Right, They're
1: projected to have another fantastic year. Yes, you had issues with some sectors here and the, the hospitality sector was uh, slated to have fantastic growth. There was so much optimism. Yeah, so whatever has happened to the luxury business is not of their own doing. It's because the world has been induced into coma by governments looking to protect their people and the unfortunate fallout of that is business suffers because customers don't have access to product by walking into a physical premises and that's pretty much what it is so that is the problem with luxury that your customers couldn't have access to your points of sale so there isn't much broken about luxury Fashion has its own problem there with fast fashion, but that's partly the lower end of luxury or even non-luxury. That's a different market. Um, So I don't see that as a problem, but what I do see is Gen Z, millennials, younger Gen X, they're not buying as much product. They're buying better, but they're buying less. So I think luxury brands have to emphasize that message and reorient their product to emphasize those values, that is where they have to move. And in terms of focus, I mean, I've, I've already combined focus with the challenge. Yeah, you're right, exactly. <laughs> but, but, but I think if you have to boil it down, be more digital, emphasize your quality, and stay in touch and align yourself with your customer values. If you do these three, luxury is already 90% there in five years.
0: So my final question, which I, the luxury item question, which I ask all my, uh, ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a desert Island and could only have one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? It can't be a form of transportation, obviously, and can't require anything that has mobile service or even have mobile service itself. So what would that one luxury item be Mickey?
1: Does the Island have a beach?
0: It has a beach. It's a uh, deserted island and um, it's maybe has three palm trees and a beach and a couple of coconuts.
1: And if I'm shipwrecked, do I, I mean, is it just my clothes and that's it? That's it. Okay. That means. uh, uh, But you have one luxury item. Yeah. I mean, I I think I'd stick with my Laura Piana scarf. (laughs) (laughs) You, You know, I mean... uh, Multi-purpose. It probably is multi-purpose. I I could use one of the three palm trees if things got really bad. Um, And, you know...
0: uh, And if uh, someone comes to the island, you'll have something, uh, you'll have a mask. Yes. (laughs) 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 But, uh, you know, uh, I
1: really love the feel of my Laura Piana scarf. That, to me, is real luxury. It's the finest wool you'll ever find. It's durable, it's not scratchy, it's soft, Uh, it's just the right length. And I feel extremely comfortable and gives me a sense of security. So if I'm stranded on a desert island, and I know no one's going to rescue me, might as well live the last days out with a sense of comfort and luxury and knowing that, uh, you know, the thing that touches me is the thing I love the most materially obviously I you know you could ask for a watch but who's keeping track of time
0: Vicki thank you so much Uh, you've been an amazing guest Um, I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, stay well uh, stay in stay sane and stay safe and uh, we'll be uh, we'll be talking soon
1: wonderful thank you so much Scott and uh, it was real pleasure uh, talking to you And uh, be safe.
0: That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.